Our passage this morning is Romans 9, verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is the word of the Lord. What a good uh, song for Senior Sunday. There's a lot of stories that we don't know how they're going to be written every page yet, but we in Christ can know how the story ends for you. Some of you might be asking that question in Romans 9 as well, like, not sure how this is going to go, but we can say we still know how the story ends. I don't know if you, like me, know some of the, the blessings and the cursings of, of all the options we have with streaming. There's so many things, options for us to, to look at. Movies and shows, are, they're at our fingertips all the time. And, and sometimes I find myself with all these options looking around with doing lots of searching and not so much of actually engaging or watching anything. And, and often what happens is I, I'll look at something and I'm like, oh, that, that sounds good. Maybe we should watch that. And then I'm like, but we need to check out some other options first. And, you know, you keep going. And pretty soon you're like, you've wasted a decent amount of time thinking like, well, I had that option, but I had tried to try all these other options. So rather than enjoying option one, I start looking for an option that I don't even know exists yet. You know, you keep going and wasting time that way. And sometimes what I'll do is like, well, I guess there's nothing here after 30 minutes. I'll go back and watch the original option, but I only go back and watch it to just critique it and wish that I had something else to watch. And my guess is many do this with Romans chapter 9. We have it on as an option, right? So you can open your Bible. Romans 9 is there. But we're thinking like maybe there's some better options out there after kind of seeing what it's about. And instead of admiring it and enjoying it, we're trying to find something else. And then if we can't find something else and we have to come back to it, then we're like, yeah, but I wish there was something better. And if we do that, we would miss out on not only some really important questions, some big arguments from Paul and some big answers, but we'll miss out on the God who's there. Amen. Paul writes to a church, a real church, real people, real believers, a church that's in Rome. And he gives them no small promises in the book of Romans, and he gives them no small God. And he does that to build their faith. Amen. And this is what Romans chapter 9 can do for us. He can give us a glimpse of the greatness of our God. Yeah, Paul has to pull back some of the curtains of the eternal counsel of this God, but the view there is a view that we don't get in other chapters in quite the same way. And here's what he gives us in verses 19 through 23. He wants his readers to know a God who has rights over his creation 
as their creator, and he gives even the reasons for his exercising of those rights with the sovereign freedom that we've seen him exercising those rights so far in Romans 9. So remember, Paul is showing that God's word, verse 6, is a word that hasn't failed. As they're looking around at the current spiritual state of Israel and they're thinking, what's going on here? All these promises from the, from the Old Testament and it doesn't seem like they're, they're coming to fruition here in these people that we're looking around seeing by and large. And he's saying, no, God's word hasn't failed. Instead of that, God's purpose of election is standing. His, his purpose and calling is standing. That, that not all Israel are true Israel, and that's the way it is meant to be. God's word hasn't failed, but has been very effective in calling, in saving true Israel out of all of Israel. And that was God's purpose in election. And that God's purpose of election of true Israel is based on nothing other than God, he shows us in verse 11, right? He says, though they were not yet born, speaking of, uh, of Isaac, it's as though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He says this. It's God that bases, is the basis of this. It's not found anything outside or higher than him. That we're on the right track is confirmed by the question of verse 14. How, how could God... Speak it in verse 11, that's Jacob and Esau. How could he, same parents, same womb, like they haven't done anything good. How could God do that? Surely there's some injustice on God's part. Verse 14, that's what it makes us ask. We're on the right track. Is there injustice in God's part? And in defending the charge of injustice on God's part, what Paul does is he goes to Exodus. And he says, from Exodus, what God has shown there. Verse 16, he says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He, he looks back and he says, God is not unjust or unfair in this. He is essentially saying that God has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will, will and that is God being God. And part of God being God is having the sovereign freedom to display his glory in and through hardening and having mercy. And so the mercy on individuals and the hardening of individuals is attributed first, primarily, and ultimately to God's will and not human will. Now, now what this doesn't do, this doesn't exclude all other details. It doesn't exclude human will, but it says that it's first because of God's will. Amen. And that we're on the right conclusion here is affirmed by what we get in verse 19. That verses 14 through 18, and that we're getting that right tracks with Paul's argument so far is affirmed with the question he asks in verse 19. Because he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, God? For who can resist his will, God's will? So what's going on here is verses 14 through 18 must assert, or at least imply, both that God is sovereign over mercy and hardening, and at the same time, man is responsible for that hardening. So, so this question is explained given that Paul says, uh, hey, why do you still find fault with me, God? But notice what's going on here. The, the question falls apart if both of those things, God's sovereignty over mercy and hardening and man's responsibility, if both those things aren't true and coinciding, Paul's explanation and answer he gives here falls apart. So if humans aren't held responsible for their choices, for their decisions, for their acts, there would be no fault here to worry about, and that is part of the question. 
But right alongside that, if mercy and hardening ultimately rested in human will, there'd be no questioning of God. Both are present in verse 19. It would just be a slam dunk for Paul to say, hey, if it's not God's deal, if he's not sovereign over this, let's lay all the blame at human feet. And say, well, it's your wills that's the problem. That's what he was saying that would be easy to do. Or he could just quickly dismiss the question. No, 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 you misunderstand me if you're asking this question. He doesn't do that. He does neither of those things. He asserts, you're responsible, there's fault, and God is sovereign. So one might try to get out of the conclusions that we've drawn so far because maybe they don't sound so good. Or there's so much mystery in here, we can't contain it, so maybe that's not true. Or maybe we just don't like it. But here's the reality is that we need to deal with what's actually there. And it seems like we've gotten the right conclusions so far because of the question and the words that are actually there. The questions of verse 14, the question of verse 19, the context of Romans chapter 9 show us that we're on the right track. If verse 18, if God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, then mercy and hardening are ultimately and first primarily resting in God's will, then the question comes to them, why does he find fault? And here's what he says in response. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul is not saying that there is no answer to verse 19. He's going to answer. He doesn't say, don't question God's ways. I think of Mary. She gets a strange news from an angel, and she says, Luke chapter 1, verse 34, like, how can these things be? What are you doing, Mary? You just heard divine revelation from an angel sent from the Lord. But she says, questioning that divine revelation, how can these things be? That question was a humble question and response. She's not rebuked in that. She's encouraged. This question of verse 19, or how in the world could God find fault with me if I can't resist his will, is not a humble question. It is not like Mary's question. It's less of how can these things be and more like this shouldn't be. That's the tone here. And you can notice it by, by how he says this. But who are you, O oh man? Notice the emphasis. Why put O in there? Because there's a tone there. Something's going on there. And man, notice, in the original, man is on one side of the sentence and God is on the other side. It's like they're in, they're in separate places in contrast to each other. And in the middle of that is this very telling question, who are you? Actually, it's just a phrase. Who are you? Man, God, who are you? So what Paul is responding so strongly to is a presumptuous, an arrogant an indignant and accusatory attitude from man. A disposition from within man that would stand in judgment over God and make God accountable to them. Make God accountable to man. So they say, hey God, you're doing this and that shouldn't be. And so Paul is vigorous in his response. It shows how completely inappropriate, backward and arrogant that question from verse 19 is and where it's coming from. And what he does in verse 20 is he puts the question back at man. It kind of, in a sense, recalls the Lord's response to Job. In Job chapter 38, he says, Who is this who darkens my counsel without wisdom? 
get ready. I'm going to question you. Who is this? And then he takes Job to the zoo. Have you thought about these things? Takes him to the, the weather channel and says, hey, clouds, you been paying attention to those much? And so Paul's response here in verse 20 is a rebuke to any who had come to God with some sort of air of presumption or arrogance or indignancy toward the Lord. Now my hunch is, knowing some of my own soul, is that the biggest problem for most of us when we're encountering, encountering Romans chapter 9 isn't first a theological problem, but first an anthropological problem. That is to say, our first problem isn't with our view of God, but our first problem is with our view of ourselves and a view of man. Those are certainly tied together, but our first problem seems to be the latter. Still, the issue isn't first theological understanding of categories and concepts, but our anthropological self-understanding. Likely you've heard this poem, and if you haven't heard the poem, you certainly know the sentiment. This is Invictus, the poem Invictus, right? And this is how it ends. It says, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't that stir like it's like, yes, like, oh, there's something in you that makes you like, oh, I'm the captain, I'm the master. Something in that resonates and it stirs us. That's why Churchill used it. Nelson Mandela used it. Others have used it. Lots of people have used this because it stirs and resonates. It's why the sentiment from that is, is everywhere. So even if you haven't heard that, you know the sentiment everywhere. Like you have that sentiment in your pocket on your phone that is trying to tell you, you're the master of your fate. Here, we'll give you lots of options for what to do with it. You're the captain here. This is your kingdom. Do what you want. And we're trying to cater everything for that very purpose. And what this leads us to is to spending little time considering the majesty of God and much time in noticing and seeking out our own majesty. So this Invictus sentiment is everywhere. It was appealed to in Eden. You'll be like God. It was at work when they're building the Tower of Babel. We can be like God. We don't need him anymore. We'll build the tower to the heavens. It's present in our self-sufficient attitudes and in our pride. And notice the, the lines from Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate. Straight gate, that sounds familiar, right? Well, there's words almost exactly like that in the King James Version of, of Matthew chapter 7. That narrow is this gate that leads to life. I'm the master, though. doesn't matter how narrow that gate is. Also in that sermon, like Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you don't need to fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. Invictus says, you don't need to fear that. You're the captain of your soul. But when that gets challenged with a narrow gate, when that gets questioned with, you need to fear one who can cast your soul into hell, when, when this master or captain mentality is limited by God because he hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills, all of a sudden this prideful response just 
comes out of us, how dare you? That is just below the surface for most of us and so near our lips because the sentiment, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul is so close to our heart. And church, my fear is that Romans 9 bothers us because of our self-dependent, prideful toes are getting stepped on. That we like being God. Or we're okay with God being God, forgiving, dispensing mercy on us. We just don't like it when it knocks us off the throne. Then we're not so happy with him. Because often what we want truly is a God that's in our image. And so Paul gives this sharp answer to help give us some pause. That before questioning God, first answer this. Who are you to answer back to God? And it's precisely that question that we need to wrestle with first before we move forward. But let's not forget that in God we live and we move and we have our being. That we, as beings, sleep third of our life-ish because we have to. And that we eat or we will die. Like we're finite and it's everywhere noticeable. And then every day, every second, every hour, we're nearing our own death. God is infinite. He needs nothing. He's eternal. So let's not only be aware of our finiteness and our frailty and our weakness, but let's let that inform our approach to God. Notice that there's, there's going to be space for asking difficult questions, right? Paul is going to give space because he doesn't just say, hey, who are you? And he moves on to something else. He says, who are you? And then he helps us. There's space for asking difficult questions. Like, God can handle that. But Paul challenges us here, right? Is this a genuine question or is this just a prideful spirit in your heart? That's the question we need to answer before moving forward. If it's a genuine question, then we can move forward. If it's just a prideful arrogance in our own heart that would say, how could God do whatever I don't want him to do? Then we're never going to have a right conclusion come in. Because we're never going to be open to whatever he says. And instead, we just, we'd rather be God. So Paul's answer in response to verse 19's question that he does give it is instructional, hopefully corrective in some ways. It's informative, but it's also informative, not just what he says, but what he doesn't say. Listen to verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The premise, verse 19, is essentially, God shouldn't find fault because no one can resist his will. We've learned that from him hardening whoever he will and having mercy on whomever he will. That's the premise. And he doesn't object to that premise, does he? He doesn't say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. What he does reject is the conclusion, right? That you can't find fault with me because it's up to you. So God is sovereign over the hardening and sovereign over the mercy and no one can resist his will. He doesn't reject that. And yet he still says man is still responsible and he doesn't, as he answers, delve into that mystery. Both those things are true and coinciding at the same time 
and he just leaves it. He doesn't try to work it out for us more distinctly than that. He rejects the conclusion, not the premise, and he just leaves it a mystery. And Paul, he, he is inspired by the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit as he writes this. This is the Spirit's wisdom in leaving out that mystery, not detailing that mystery. It's as if the Spirit is saying, you might not be able to comprehend this. You might not be able to contain what this answer really would be if I detailed it out in full. And so what he does first is he challenges our attitudes and says that's first the path for readers if you want to move forward. So we don't need to find every exact detail that we want or impose that on the text. We need to trust that the Lord knows that there's some things that are His and are secret need to remain there and we can trust His wisdom in that. What he does do is he promotes and encourages humility. Because of who we are, oh man, and because of who God is. And he emphasizes this more with this kind of illustration he uses. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And listen to verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a pretty strong illustration, and this strong illustration is, is uh, an image that they would have been aware of in, in lots of different ways, especially those who had some familiarity with the Old Testament. There are several Old Testament texts that, that kind of speak this way. So if you look in Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah 29, 16 says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made say it? The, the, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah has, picks this image up again in Isaiah 45. Listen to 45 verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say? To him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? You see the sentiment kind of mirrored in verse 19's question from Romans? Or in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And we are all the work of your hand. Jeremiah picks up this same kind of image in Jeremiah Chapter 18. So again, there's a few different places that would have been familiar to them that Paul uses here. 18, verse 3, he says, So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and they reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So there's, there's various uses to this imagery, and, and it's in many different places, not just even in the Old Testament. There are lots of texts that have this kind of imagery. And what Paul doesn't seem to do, he doesn't seem to draw from one specifically and say, this is the one, but he kind of uses them all kind of generally. And here's what they all do. They all are working in different ways and kind of emphasizing different things, but all affirm that we're on the right track with the questioner of verse 19 coming with some attitude of, of accusation towards the Lord, 
Because what he is saying in all of these, what the picture is, is that God, as the potter, the maker, has sovereign rights over the, the clay, the things that are made. He is the one who is sovereign over those things. That the potter and the clay are not equal. That, that God, as God, has this sovereign freedom, sovereign power, and the right to exercise that power and freedom and sovereignty as the potter has the sovereign right over the clay. That's the image that Paul is drawing up. And we can understand this, right? I, I've been trying to be more faithful with journaling to help me you know, slow down, meditate on the Word, and so I, I try to write something on the page. And it's really hard for me because I think I have nothing to say on this particular thing. But I'm trying to force it out to connect thought, you know, just all the goodness of journaling is supposed to be. And here's what I don't want. I don't want people to pick that up and be like, well, look what Dylan said here on this date. This must be what, what this is. Like, no, that's just my random thought. I'm trying to help myself, right? Like, don't hold me to the mind. This is not meant to be used for some profound thought or put on a blog. or It's just me writing things down, trying to help understand and know God's word better. That's what me do. So don't misuse it. I don't want you to use it for those other types of things. In fact, like, I think you can write this in your will. It's like, when I'm dead, just burn it, right? Like, it's over. That's, there's no other purpose other than that. It's my words, right? Like, this, this is my thing. This is not meant for certain things. And I think what Paul's illustration does is it helps us reflect on that reality. That God is the one who has the sovereign rights over it. He made it. It's his. It belongs to him. And he has rights over it to exercise his sovereignty and freedom as he chooses. It helps us to reflect on who this potter is. We shouldn't come to God or this potter and just question him. We should consider him. Investigate. Who is this? What is his position as the potter? What are his rights as this one who is the maker of all things? We can so quickly go to our rights, but we need to first consider the rights of this sovereign God, the one who is the maker and creator of all things. Let's first go there before we then go down to our rights and think how they're infringed upon. Surely you're familiar with the story of the gingerbread man. This little old woman and this little old man, they make this gingerbread man. And I can't remember exactly in detail, like, when this, like, I think they bake the gingerbread man first, and then, like, they pull him out of the oven, and pop, like, he just starts running. And immediately, like, this gingerbread man just starts taunting them, like, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And it goes to the forest, and it taunts more things, the bear, there's, there's several, a guy with an axe, the woodsman, there's, there's lots of things that this gingerbread man just starts taunting, and says, you can't catch me. And... He comes to some water, and this is where he can't, he can't get wet, and that will destroy me. So he, a fox says, I'll help you out. And he jumps on the fox's back, like, just on your back, all right, because I'm scared that you're going to eat me. And like, no, just right on my back, no big problem. He goes a little deeper, right? So the, the fox keeps going down further and further in the water, so the, the gingerbread man has to keep hopping up until it hops right on his nose and then snap. You know, like the, the fox snaps up the gingerbread man. And at the end of it, I'm like, yes, that little punk gingerbread man got exactly... <laughs> Got exactly what he was deserved, all right? That story, notice the center of the story. The little old woman and the little old man, they, they are forgotten about and left behind. It focuses completely on the gingerbread man. Now, here, don't push this illustration too far, right? I'm just saying, 
that the illustration, that the story, what was created, then all of a sudden became the focus of the entire thing. And don't we do that? Not about the Lord anymore, the one who made all things. We want to reverse it now. We're the center of the story. And so, again, when we come to God exercising His authority and freedom and sovereignty as God, we start to think about us first, not Him. As Creator, doesn't God have rights over all of His creation? Yes. And it's not up to us. He can make from the same lump whatever He wants. Isn't that Jacob and Esau? Like, same womb there. Like, and he's doing different things there, distinct things there. The answer then to how we can find fault, how God can find fault if none can resist his will, is in part to say God has rights over the clay. There's part of your answer. It's not everything, but he's saying, like, how, how can God find fault? Because he has rights over all that he's made. And who is a creature to limit the rights of God? How can clay advise a potter or qualify his parameters? God has rights. And God's work and rights as a creator are to be admired, not judged. They are to be adored, not criticized. And so that's why Paul questions, verse 21, has the potter no right? over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So hopefully now with attitudes in check, what about the question, Paul? It's a big one and it's a difficult one. And Paul moves from answering right here. He's saying, here's the objection, verse 19. Here's God's rights as God Verse 20, part of 21. And then he moves to God's reasons. Answering from God's rights, then to God's reasons for the question of verse 19. So he expands the potter illustration to help give reasons for God exercising his rights in certain ways. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, he gives reasons. He starts with God. What if God? And he starts to tread on some hallowed ground, doesn't he? Because what he does is he doesn't answer, and I don't think he even intends to seek to answer according to normal human values, normal human reasons, or even normal human understanding. I don't think he does that. Carried along by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, Paul gives answers that may or may not line up with whatever humanity can come up with, and so we need to be careful with imposing our own thinking, our own understanding, our own questions upon God and His ways. What he does do is he gives reasons that will align with God and his purposes and his ways. And so he starts with God. And he, and he reasons for why vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. And he says of them that these are vessels that, are, that he has endured with much patience. That's interesting. 
In other words, they're clay. And he's bearing with clay. And let's remember what Paul has said thus far, because nothing that he says in Romans 9 unwrites any of the things that he says anywhere else, but especially in the book of Romans. And here's what he says so far about clay. Chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, all men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth, they turn it, they twist it, they make it their own. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This clay that he speaks of, these vessels that he speaks of, made out of clay, whether for wrath or for mercy, are not neutral vessels. And God is not an unjust God. And so when you have very unneutral vessels, read in there unrighteous, and an unjust God who won't be unjust, who is very righteous, what you need to see there is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And so any millisecond of endurance of this unrighteousness of these vessels is patience from God. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says that he's patient so that these unrighteous vessels would repent. And here he says that that delay, that enduring with patience, has a purpose. And here's the purpose that he gives here in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The, the purpose that he gives here is to show his wrath and power. Now verse 22 shares a lot with verse 17. Same word show, same word power, similar concepts. They're very parallel verses. In verse 17, it says, For this very purpose I... God raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. By delaying judgment on Pharaoh, which he deserved as one who was hardened against the Lord, by delaying that judgment, what happens? His power reverberates. And it doesn't just reverberate to Israel, but also to the nations. And it doesn't just reverberate in terms of it just moves outward. It is shown to be greater than they would have originally thought it to be. Because he keeps hardening and he keeps amping up the power, the strength that is displayed. All the way until the firstborn, and then they go to the Red Sea, and it's just more power, more power. That you wouldn't have seen had it changed after frogs or gnats. More power is shown. So how does God show wrath and power in destruction here, as he says in verse 22. I think it's similar. That like with Pharaoh, God endures 
with patience. And, and this enduring with patience, these vessels that are prepared for destruction, these vessels of wrath, what he is doing is he's even further displaying his awesome power that you wouldn't see if he weren't enduring them that way. So I think of coaching. I'm not a coach. I may understand this, though, right? You can start to see some of the gen- genius of coaches in their strategy. Think, think of football. You, you try to bait the other team in different ways. You're, you're playing a little bit of cat and mouse. And so who's better is going to win oftentimes? Of course, it's the, not the X's and O's. It's the Johnny's and the Joe's. But X's and O's matter, right? So, so what you do, you, you run a route as a receiver. And you run the same route. And you run the route. And you run the route. And you run the route. And then you pull a double move. And defense is caught off guard. Like the coach does that. I'm going to call the same route, and it's going to look the same over and over and over again, and I'm going to pull the double move, and all of a sudden we're going to think, they're a genius. They scored. Touchdown. Or you let the D-linemen, you let them, they're just coming after the runners, and you're going to block them, you're going to block them, you're going to block them, you're going hard, you're running right at them all the time, and then all of a sudden you do a trap. You let them go, and then you smear them, right? You just, you crush them, and you go right through the, the gap. So it shows some patience, Right? You, you, you can't run that first. You've you got to run it and run it and run it, and then you pull the trap. You, you run the route, you run the route, you run the route, then you do the double move, and you score a touchdown. And, and so the patience there, the strategy there, the genius there, actually ends up showing, glorifying, exalting the, the, the strategy of the coach, the greatness of the coach, that he can do this, 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 and then boom. It displays the full greatness of a coach to work this way over and over and over again, and so too it is with God. That with patience, he's enduring these things. And what it's going to do is it's going to show more glory known to to those around than it would have otherwise. Israel and the nations, they wouldn't be near the concept or the idea or the reality of God's powerful wrath and awesome power apart from God raising up Pharaoh and hardening him like he did so that he could display his name and glory like he did. It not only showed His wrath and His judgment upon sin and how great and mighty that is. But it showed His great power, that the glory of His name, the name, the Lord, the Lord that is great and powerful, that that, that hardens whom He wills and shows mercy to whom He wills, and that that name is the name that from this very event, the hardening of Pharaoh goes out. And I think it's working similar in verse 22. One commentator kind of concludes that God defers his immediate judgment of vessels of wrath so that he can unveil the full extent of his power and wrath on those who continually resist his offer of repentance. What Paul never tries to do is soften this and say that there aren't vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. He doesn't do that. I think we come to it and we wish that he would, but he doesn't. And so we dare not go further than the wisdom of God here. God defers his immediate judgment on vessels of wrath so that he can unveil the full extent of his power and wrath on those who continually resist his offer of repentance. In vessels of wrath, the vessels that are not neutral, God is making his power and wrath known. And apparently, because we trust that this God never does anything that's not needed, apparently this is not unnecessary. He's not doing vain things. Would anyone know of God's awesome power apart from this? 
Oh, we don't know the answer to that. I think God might. Would anyone know his wrath and be warned of it rightly apart from these types of things? We don't know, but God does. Would anybody know his mercy apart from seeing a display of his wrath? Would they know what that mercy actually is? So God, with rights as God, gives the reason that the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction show his wrath and his power. That's the reason. And apparently this is part of God's revealing the fullness and the full range of his glory and his name. And that's what's behind this. That's what he says here. And it's against this backdrop of wrath and vessels that are prepared for destruction that Paul moves to vessels of mercy. These are vessels that are not neutral. They are recipients of the non-justice of God. Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's glory is his splendor, his majesty, his holiness, his perfections, his beauty on display. And apparently, there's not just some of it, there's riches of this glory. Like, I hear from this, like, you, is it DuckTales where Scrooge jumps into the money at the beginning and like is just swimming. It's like there's, there's that much. There's riches of, of glory from God. That's what's being said here. Riches of glory. You can dive in and swim in it and like kind of never get to the end. There's plenty. How can clay, what is made, know the riches of the glory of God? The riches. Is, how can they know His splendor, His majesty, His holiness, His beauty? You know it because it's placed, at least in part, against the backdrop of his wrath. Maybe you had this happen this week. One of the greatest, I don't know, feelings maybe is, is when you, you have soaking wet clothes and you kind of have to live in them for a while to take those off and put on dry clothes. Like that is a great feeling, isn't it? Have you ever done that? Wet socks, you take them off, put on dry socks. It is great. It's a great feeling. But you know what? I'm normally not thankful for dry clothes. That's such a great feeling because I don't like being in wet clothes. And I don't know that I'd know that great feeling apart from the wetness of the clothes. And that, that, that can help you grasp kind of maybe what Paul is getting at here. That the backdrop of wrath makes this mercy appear all the more glorious. It makes this mercy appear all the more Fully, It is known as greater than it would have been known had there been no wrath or no judgment at all. It's a display then, against the backdrop of wrath, this mercy is a display of the riches of the glories of God. All vessels of mercy are also those who should be vessels of wrath. All of those vessels of mercy are those who were found in chapter 1 verse 18 too, under the wrath and judgment of God. That's who they are. But they received mercy because God has mercy on whomever he will have mercy because God prepared them for glory. And in that, God is displaying the full range of his mercy and glory in them and through them. God is displaying his riches, the riches of his glory. Listen to this comment. Thus, to show the full range of his glory, God prepares beforehand not only vessels of mercy, but also vessels of wrath in order that the riches of his glory in connection with the vessels of mercy 
might thereby become more clearly manifest. No. Thus, that is really small on that screen, and that is a really important quote. Thus, it is surely right for God to prepare vessels of wrath. For it is only by so doing that he is able to show the exceeding riches of his glory, the capstone of which is his mercy. For God not to prepare vessels of wrath would mean that he could not fully reveal himself as the merciful God. That needs to be unthinkable to us. Let me read that again. For God not to prepare vessels of wrath would mean that he could not fully reveal himself as the merciful God. Thus creation could not honor him for what he really is. And God would then have been unrighteous. For in the act of creation, he would have done something inconsistent with the full delight he has in his own glory. Now, here's what this does. Is this does not answer every question that you have. My, my guess is there's still probably an aching in your soul with that of like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And surely there's more in Romans 9 that we're going to unveil should you want to return. But what do we do with this? Let's not move around what God has actually put there in the text and outthink God as if this isn't for our Good and training and correction and reproof in righteousness so that we might be equipped. What do we do with this? Well, I think the first thing we do with this is we be careful with questioning God. Listen to Job, verse 42. This, this is at least in part, I think, could be some of our response, what to do with this. Job answers the Lord after the Lord. Again, took him to the zoo, showed him the weather. He says... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Have you ever stopped and said that to the Lord? Maybe that's appropriate here after Romans 9. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Have you ever confessed that for the Lord? Hear and I will speak. I will question you and I will make it known to you. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what he does there? That, that despising of himself and repent and, and this dust and ashes, it isn't him all of a sudden thinking that he is uh, just a, a worm in the sense of like he has no value. He's saying in light of God... I'm going to turn from my way and I'm going to worship yours. What do we do with Romans 9, 19 through 23? We repent and we worship. We bow before God. That's worship. Bowing before Him. You're king, I'm not. You're God, I'm not. You're the sovereign one, I'm not. And we should also say, and I'm good with that. Exercise your rights as God as you please. I, I don't get to control that. I'm just thankful that I could be Included in that. We need to know, as, Paul, as Job does at the end there, that there is nothing in God to cower away from, that there's nothing in God to hide. Everything in God is glorious. Now, we may not know all the fullness of how that is, but we can know that there's riches of glory in God and that everything there is glorious and worth looking at. It's my temptation, maybe it's yours, to come to Romans 9 and want to kind of like hide away from what's really there. Let's not outthink God here. He wrote this down. 
So what do we do with this? Well, if we haven't repented and believed in Christ, then you need to know that you're still under the wrath of God. And here's what I think that Paul would say amen to. Repent and believe in Jesus. If you're you're here and you're an unbeliever, I'm so grateful that you're here and listening to this. I don't, as far as I know, no one has gotten up and walked out. I'm thankful for that. Thanks for your patience here. What I would have you do with this information that we know from God and His hardening whom He will and, and softening whom He will and having mercy and vessels of wrath and vessels of prepared for glory, He would have you repent and believe. And God will have you. God is enduring patiently with each of us. And His patience is is meant to lead us to repentance. Every breath that we breathe that's not breathed out in worship of the sovereign free God is a breath that we have stolen from Him to do with it and use it for what He made it to do. And He is enduring us even now so that we might repent of our sins and trust in Him. And He'll have you. I read Psalm 105 this morning, and you can do this almost anywhere in Scripture, right? This is just an example. I just picked up Psalm 105. It was in my reading plan, and here's what it says in verse 3. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. You could do this anywhere. Seek God, and He'll be found. You can seek the Lord and rejoice. Why? Because if you seek Him, you're going to find it. You're going to find joy. He'll have you if you come to Him for mercy. So if you haven't repented and believed, and you're hearing like, am I a vessel of wrath? I would say repent and believe. Let's say you have received mercy in Christ. You believed in Jesus. You've trusted in Him. You're in Christ Jesus. What do you do with this? Well, you, of all, should know more fully the the riches of the glory of God, the, the display of His power and His mercy in ways that others can't know apart from having received that mercy. And what do you do with this? What do you do with the difference between what you deserved, which is wrath, eternal destruction and what you've received mercy prepared for glory that you will receive because he'll get you there as he said in Romans chapter 8 what do you do in the gap of those things what do you do with that difference between what's known as deserved and what is received it should light you up in worship to God and send you out to others who don't know the best commentary for what to do with these truths and realities of Romans 9 is to read the book of Acts. Paul and the apostles and these believers in the book of Acts, they hold these truths. They're not arguing about them. They hold them to be true. And what does it do in the book of Acts? Peter gets beat up and he counts it joy because he knew, I was the one who despised even belonging to Jesus. I denied it three times and yet he restored me. How merciful of it. So you can beat me up. I'm going to do what he says. He knew what he deserved and he knew what he received and it lit him up in worship for the Lord and sent him out in joyful suffering for others so that they might hear the name of Christ, repent and believe. Think about Paul. I was with the seniors on Wednesday in youth home group and Pastor Ryan brought this up. It's a great example. Look in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. Listen, this is Paul at Corinth. Listen to verse 9. The Lord says to Paul, one night in a vision, don't be afraid, go on speaking, don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. They might attack you. He says, for I have many in the city who are my people. 
go on speaking. What was Paul doing? He, he was going out and he was broad sowing, getting the gospel everywhere. In, in this chapter, he had just gone to the synagogue. They despised him. So he goes to the Gentiles and he starts preaching the gospel there. That's what he does. He, he doesn't say, and God doesn't tell him. God doesn't say, you know what? Those people that despise you, they're vessels of wrath. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, you know what? Go sp- find out those vessels of mercy and speak to them. He says, go on speaking. Do what you've been doing. Keep it up because I have many here. And what does Paul do? Does he seek out the secret will of God? No, he stays a year and six months teaching the word of God just among them. That's what he does with it. And if you remember the storyline of Corinth, like they're kind of a stubborn church. They're a little bit difficult to deal with. Paul writes them a couple letters that are included in here in the scriptures. And to stubborn Corinth, where he stayed, because there were many that were there, the Lord had assured him. He doesn't then hear of their stubbornness and rebellion, their dividing, they're showing sexual immorality in their midst, they're doing all these things. He doesn't say to them, well, they must be vessels of wrath. What does he say to them? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What would Christ say? And as an ambassador, you're just saying what he would say. What would Christ say? God is making his appeal through us. And so here's what we do. We implore you. Notice the the pleading that he had in in Romans 9. There's some pleading here. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does the knowledge of Romans 9 do for Paul? It sends him out to difficult, stubborn places, and he pleads with him. He implores him, please be reconciled to God. That's what he does with it. This idea that somehow with verses 19 through 23 will just leave us motionless and mute with the gospel is not found anywhere in the scripture or in the practice of the apostles. Instead, he says, we implore you, and that's what we should do. If you've received the mercy, you are an ambassador, knowing uniquely as an ambassador the mercies that are not known to everybody because you have received it in the backdrop of the wrath that you deserved. And so what you need to do is go out and implore people, be reconciled to God, and we can implore them to be reconciled to God because they can be. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can plead them be reconciled to God because they can, because Christ came. He was the propitiation for sin, so that in him we might find redemption. And it's in that church that we place our hope. And it's that that we remember in the Lord's Supper. If you're his, this meal's for you. If you're not, we implore you. Don't take this meal. Be reconciled to God. God, you are so much greater than we can even understand with our tiny minds, but we do praise you today. We have heard your word. And God, I pray that we would not resist what your Holy Spirit has revealed to us. That every single person in this room 
based on how we've lived, what we've thought, what we've desired, what's come out of our mouths, the deepest reaches of our hearts. Uh, we are sinful, and we deserve nothing from you except your wrath. That's who we are, but that's not the end of the story, and that's not the totality of who you are. You are a merciful God, and we are about to put bread in our mouths that remind us of how your body was beaten and torn and destroyed instead of ours. And we're about to drink juice that reminds us that blood flowed out of your body for crimes, for sins that we've committed, not you. That's what your mercy looks like. And that's how you have rescued us, Lord. And we want to praise you today. Move our hearts, God. Convict us of sin and also let our souls be elated in your goodness, in your forgiveness, in the giving of your Holy Spirit to guide us and help us to live righteous lives, Lord. God, where are those, where there are those today who do not yet know you, God? Lift up the veil. Let them see you for who you are. Draw them to yourself, God. Grant them repentance and forgiveness of sins. Draw them to yourself, God. Bring them into your family, Lord. We are unworthy of your love, Jesus, but we praise you that we have received it. In your name we pray. Amen.